0: So, we're not just gonna pick on people that were Jeff Gordon fans. No, Dupont. It's bigger than Dupont. It's bigger than 3M. It's everything. I mean, it's
1: uh, I, I I get why it's a why it got to where it is. It's a popular. It's useful. Like, so, I guess before we even go into the downsides of using it, how we got here. Define it, <laughs> PFAS, Yeah, it, it's a class of chemicals. I I think it was uh, in the 40s it was invented. Yeah. Um, uh, it's a class of chemicals that's considered a surfactant. So it, it both repels water and it repels oil, and it it's very useful. Uh, sure, a lot right. of usefulness from those properties. Um, and so, really man-made,
0: right? Not naturally Man-made. man-made.
1: There is no natural um, occurrences of this type of molecule, and it. Because everything gets repelled from it, you know. There was always this assumption early on when it was invented that it's harmless. Because if it doesn't type if if you put it on you and it just washes off, it doesn't want to stick to you. The assumption has always been that
0: okay. So if you're a politician, you want to bathe in it.
1: Oh yeah, uh, the the joke for a long time was Bill Clinton was made out of Teflon, and Teflon <laughs> is a right. class is, is PFOs. Right. So it's a type of PFOs. So uh, they really got really popular um, because of those properties. But what's really important about it being uh, both hydrophobic, so it's afraid of uh, water, and hydrophilic, uh, and uh, afraid of oil, it's also because it's very stable. So the molecules are defined by uh, a carbon-fluorine bond. So this is where I get to go into my geeky chemist self. All right. uh, the carbon-fluorine bond in chemistry is one of the most is one of the strongest bonds you can make. It's very hard to break. So heat, pressure—it's very hard to actually. So it doesn't catch on fire. It doesn't catch on fire. And if you make a PFOS molecule, or if you make a molecule with this carbon-fluorine bond, it's really hard for that molecule to degrade and break down into something else. So if you're trying to make a consumer product, for instance. Well, it's perfect because you make it and it's just, it's there. You don't have to worry about it. Uh, And then because it repels water, repels oil, it became very, very useful in different things. So cookware was one of the first applications of it. So if you think about your nonstick pans, paints, uh, you know, so all the really nice high-end paints, for instance, from Sherwin-Williams and so forth, where, you know, they show the advertisements, your kid drawing on crayons on the wall, and you just take a wet sponge and you just wipe it off, well, that's because PFAS at work. PFAS is it, in the paint. It's in the paint because it's repelling the crayon. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't want to absorb the crayon. It doesn't want to latch onto the crayon. But it binds with paint. It binds because it's mixed in as part of the constituents of the paint. So it's very much so part of that paint that's in there. So, so it gets slathered on, but it repels everything that you try to put on it. And then later on, it got into, shoot, uh, there was a fad in the mid-2000s, I remember, uh, the stain repellent pants, right? So they show people— and the Gore-Tex stuff. Yeah, they, they, they show squirting ketchup on it, and you just wipe it <laughs> off. And so it became really popular uh, in those applications as well. Um, and then uh, fire, because it's resistant to heat and breakdown, uh, but it can be a liquid, uh, it was very popular in firefighting foams for uh, airports— Okay. Uh, so the Air Force was actually very, very big fans of just spraying down runways for the experimental planes and so forth. You know, that might be coming in hot. They don't want it to catch fire. All right, spray the yeah, runway Yeah, people down. die. PFAS, yeah. Um, and then uh, firefighters in rural areas, so you don't have a hydrant hooked up. Um, well, by per kilogram, PFAS is a much more effective firefighting agent than water is. So if your fire truck can only hold a tank this big, well, you're much more effective if you uh,
0: filled it with PFOS. Is that what they were spraying all over Colorado and yep. California every time you see the summer yep. wildfires yep. breaking Forest out? Forest fires, yep. So they were spraying, dropping PFOS
1: foam, firefighting foam. Do they still? They Certain places they still do. It's still widely used even though the EPA is starting to regulate and call for it. Um, it hasn't it's banned to a certain extent but only specific classes of the chemical. So uh, so that, that comes down to the addressing the challenges as well because they're novel man-made m- molecules. You can make new versions of it every single day. So if EPA says, okay, PFAS A, B, C, and D are now banned, if I'm a company that's relying on creating materials, chemical company materials, and new classes of materials for my consu- my customers, my consumers. You know, Dockers wants a new set of pants that are stain resistant, but this mat- molecule is banned. Okay, let me tweak it a little. And I'll make a new molecule. So you get E and G. So now, yep, and then so, so that continues to be produced. And for the longest time, people didn't think it would matter that much because if it just passes through you, why why bother? And they were in such low concentrations. They also thought, okay, it's such low amounts. Why does it matter? The problem is now we're 80 years from the 1940s since inventing these molecules. And as I mentioned, the carbon-fluorine bonds are so strong, they're not breaking down in the environment. So you think about
0: other— Or in the body.
1: Or in the body. So if you think about how— pollutants in general. So you think about nuclear wastes or you think about uh, pesticides. That was weird. I was about Talked that every day. day. Yeah. But it, those things break down. So, you know, a lot of times landfills and waste disposal places, what they really do is just they, they give contaminants a chance to break down into their original constituents. So you might make a molecule that's very toxic, but expose it to enough sun, wind, whatever, they will start to biodegrade down to just carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, water, and their constituent molecules, and then relatively harmless after an uh, amount of time has gone by, as long as it's not in your body. One challenge with PFOS is it doesn't. So whatever we've made stays in the environment. And over the course of 80 years of having this molecule been invented, it's starting to accumulate now. And the problem is we're at the top of the food chain. So originally, when it was invented, we, we washed it down into the water system and so forth. So plankton picked it up. Algae picked it up. You know, they're very small molecules, and they're sm- small animals. Well, then fish eats it. Okay, well, fish eats it. It gets into the crops or a couple plants. Okay, so the little critters starts eating it, and then that gets into your farmland. And so what happens is it's called bioaccumulation. So, we're starting to, at each step above, each step we take above the food chain, PFAS starts to get accumulated more and more and more. So, if you think about a cow, for instance, how much grass it has to eat before it gets to that point, and then all of the rain, the runoff, that's what gets to that point. And so now the issue is it doesn't break down, so we're finding PFAS in everybody. So, the FDA released a study. 97% of Americans at one point when they did a study had PFAS in our bodies, in our blood. What level of it in our bodies makes it toxic? So they don't we really don't know. We're at the very forefront of the exposure studies. So the physiological studies. So studies have been done on PFOS for decades now in terms of its properties and its application. Because how, I could sell it. How can we sell it? How can we use it? And <clears throat> that's very popular. But now we're finally at a point of like, oh my God, what is it doing to people? So some of the early links were Cancers. Um, some, uh, thyroid issues is one of the biggest ones being investigated at the moment. And then uh, pregnancy issues. So, so what's it doing with the thyroid? It's causing re- regulation, hormone regulation issues in the thyroid. So people are having goiters. People are having different types of hormonal imbalances uh, who are exposed to a lot of PFAS. And one of the biggest scares right now, really, it, it's the fertility they, they think that a big part of what's dropping fertility rates across the world, and especially in the U.S., it's actually PFAS accumulation in people, uh, that it's reducing the fertility of our population as a whole, and which is what's launching a lot of some of these um, really scary regulatory investigations now into more physiological studies.
0: And but if that's going into the body, yep. and you can't break it down in the body, yep. It stays in the body. It stays in the sure. body. So if it's if it potentially yeah. is impacting fertility, yep, yeah. there that's not something that's curable. At the moment,
1: cleanup is really hard for PFOS because part of the the challenge is because it's so
0: stable that there is no easy way. There's not a thyroid pill I could take. There's if if it's triggering some kind of cancer. There's I mean, not. You,
1: you treat the symptoms,
0: obviously, right? You treat so. the symptoms, but like even with the cancer, and and you try to use nuclear medicine yeah. to go after the cancer. But you still have PFAS in your body. So There's still PFOS, yeah. And the, even the chemotherapy, the nuclear medicine, yeah. is not breaking that down? No. It's so you're kind of just toast. It, well.
1: You are. So the, luckily for us, it's the, the exposure levels are at a point where we're seeing population scale issues. But not at a point where everybody. So we're all exposed to PFAS every day. You know, you're, you're, the cup you're probably wearing or you're, you're drinking from, uh,
0: the bottles that we have. I the, the sandwiches that you get at a fast food joint. Yep, the wrappers. The wrappers. Yep,
1: they'll they'll be impregnated with this, so that oil doesn't seep through to your hand when you're taking a bite, because <laughs> that's how you prevent it. So it gets coated with a layer of. You know, some of the more eco-friendly places, they'll probably use a type of wax or something like that, plant-based wax, that's fine. But, you know, if you're buying a $1.99 burger somewhere, it's probably the cheap industrial type of uh, food fruit pro- fruit products that allows... And it's going to have PFAS on it and, or some variation of it. It's ubiquitous, and it's something that we can't avoid. The good news is it's not at a point where, okay, everybody's exposed, is automatically going to have health issues. Uh, the concern is, again, it's... We aren't. We haven't stopped using them, and it's still continuing to accumulate. And then we can't really get rid of it. It's truly what they would call a forever chemical. So uh, you know, I joke with my fiance all the time. Instead of a diamond ring, I should have gotten her a PFAS ring because diamonds break down under heat and
0: oxygen. So it's not really for forever, but PFAS is. Yeah, you're so. you're killing the beer's commercials. Yeah. Um. That's funny. So I I saw this uh, video clip Mm -hmm. on YouTube. It was a newscast out of Maine where the governor had allocated some emergency funding. I think it was $8 million for some PFAS testing. But the genesis of it was, and I think this was last fall,
1: Mm
0: -hmm. where they found the PFAS in deer. Yep. And hunters going out. Yep. I'm a hunter. I've got a freezer full of venison meat. Yep. But you have the deer that are eating the grass or drinking the water. It's got the PFAS chemical and it's to the point where it's there's a toxicity to it. Yep. To where that meat is automatically contaminated, not safe for human consumption, mm-hmm. yep. even though you're effectively harvesting that in even if you're a bull hunter, right. the most natural way that you could. Yep. Right, right. You so, think about
1: it's free. It's a deer in nature, not raised. It's hunting season. You yeah. got
0: your tag permit. You got
1: you. You must think it's it's got to be the most organic and clean way of getting access to meat. Right, but it's not the case. And because
0: our water's polluted with this stuff, yeah. because the grass is polluted with this stuff, and yep. the EPA seemingly really doesn't have any teeth to be able to combat this.
1: No. So the regulations that. Originally, governed PFAS were under an act called the Safe Drinking, Safe Water Drinking Act. Is that the Flint,
0: Michigan stuff? No, it's not not really related.
1: uh, But that act regulated drinking water standards for the entire nation, and it was done in the '90s. Okay. Um, And it had PFAS on there, actually, even back then. But the challenge with that was the, the molecules were relatively weren't understood very well, and that act was really written to facilitate testing, not really facilitating actual physiological impacts, so it was to make sure that it was an act that was written so that people can test properly. So you can't make it too hard, otherwise certain municipalities or agencies won't be able to test because they don't have the capability to test. And it's been generally regarded that the limits for PFAS as part of that act is sometimes between 20 to 100 times too high, or the initial limits set by regulatory bodies. So now the, the regulations are coming down again, and we're in the early stages of new EPA regulations, but they really haven't been passed into enforceable regulations. So there are regulations that exist. So EPA states, okay, this method, method 537 or whatever, they're using for testing drinking waters, and these are the acceptable limits for analysis, but it's not really an enforceable act at the end of the day. And and part of that, I think, you know, and it's really more of my own opinion, but I think part of it is there is no cleanup you can do. So let's say if we found out the entire city of Dallas' water has too high of PFAS limits, well, you can't really shut off the entire city of Dallas's water, nor is there a way, easy way of cleaning up PFAS. There's no online method of
0: cleaning up PFAS. You can't run in through carbon filters over and over again. I mean, that's going to be really expensive if you have to do that. So you can, but think
1: about on a city scale wide, right? So you're still – it's more about we can eliminate, let's say, we do put filters in everybody's spigot at home. Okay, so what you're drinking and cooking with is fine. Okay, well, do you then filter the shower water that you're going to shower? Actually, I
0: do. Yeah. So My my wife is a nutritionist. Okay. We have these – so but go ahead.
1: Yeah, so so that becomes a challenge. But then, do you then filter the sprinkler on your lawn, right? So 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 at what point does it become the water in the pool? Exactly, and then it all goes out into the environment eventually, and it still gets accumulated in The issue is the primary means of getting PFOS into our body really is the everyday <laughs> stuff that we wear, that we touch. And We eat. We just absorb it. We absorb it from all avenues. So you general, don't. It's so it's not just ingesting. It's absorbed. Your your body can't absorb it. You know, it's okay. just from some. So that I think that's why we we don't see as much stain resistant pants being advertised on, you know, on TV anymore and stuff like that because it, it's impregnated with all. You know, for ketchup to slide off like yeah. a, an egg on a pan, there, Did, there's quite a bit of this stuff in that cloth.
0: Have you seen the uh, John Oliver? Uh, it's his thing on HBO, but he had a segment on PFOS. No, I haven't yet. Yeah. They had a guy from a commercial, and look legitimate, but it was from DuPont in the early 90s, and one of their chemists talking about the virtues of right. the compound and yeah. spraying trees with it. Yeah, And sp- spraying the trees with it, he's talking about, and bugs will just fall off. They yep. can't stay on it, which, you know, you think, okay, well— Beetles kind of go and kill trees when trees are overpopulated. So you're trying to prevent forest fire, but what are you doing to the trees with what you're protecting them exactly. with against the bugs in that natural habitat? Yep. So it kind of goes full circle there. This it would seem like there was a there's not a nefarious intention. No, at all. Yeah. It's, I mean, yeah. Companies have to make money. They invent things that right. create value for people. And then the long-term effects, you figure that stuff out over time.
1: Yeah, and unfortunately, it's just one that came ahead that this molecule itself, it's just too darn stable. It's yeah. it's too, too darn tough to uh, for us to easily now remedy the problem that we find ourselves in. And then also, how much our lives have become dependent on this entire class of molecules, right? So...
0: If you cut all production of anything with PFOS right now, if somebody had a magic wand and said, thou shalt not yeah. make one more PFOS chemical, put it in any consumer or right. any kind of product whatsoever, yeah. what, if it's in this indestructible compound, what's already out in the wild? It's going to stay in the wild? It's going to stay in the wild, yeah. It, it will take millions
1: of years before they would even begin to start breaking down. That's how strong that molecule, those bonds are between that molecule. It takes in right now the only methods really of getting rid of rid of PFOS, it's really high heat incineration. So we're talking over a thousand degrees in a furnace of this material being just burned to crisp before you can actually break apart the carbon-fluorine bonds for the molecules to be broken down.
0: That doesn't really work for our water supply and our livestock. No, yeah.
1: And so the only way we can get around it now is testing, is making, being aware of what are the hot sites. So in Maine, right, we we found deer that, a couple deer that were tested and were suspected of being, you know, potentially being contaminated. And they go,
0: whoa. What would have been the indicator where they said, let's go check out the venison?
1: So, you know, most likely uh, probably triggered by something else. Uh, I I believe in the case of Maine, what triggered it was dairy, Testing, which goes through quite a bit of testing, and I think a dairy farm uh, downstream of a of a uh, decommissioned industrial plant that used to manufacture a lot of this these uh, this class of compounds was tested, and then the dairy products was found to have a lot of P, uh, really elevated PFOS levels in it, and I think through that capturing and testing, they found the deer, and then so you, then you go as a. As a regulator or as somebody who regulates envir- uh, environmental regulator, you go, okay, where is the most logical place next that it would accumulate up? So you think about foragers, you think about animals that are in the, in the wild that are drinking the water Eating, eating grass off the ground that's being fed by the water and the runoff, and they're the ones that constantly accumulate. So the next thing you go to is, okay, and then how does it affect the population? So then you think, okay, hunters hunt, and it's the deer that's grazing for generations in these areas, You know, around this plant as a whole. Let's test them. So what they do, they, you know, they shoot a couple deer and then they get the tissue analyzed
0: and the elevations through the sky. And they go, okay. Do they go and check fish? There's got to be streams and lakes in that area. Oh yeah, fish
1: are shown to have extremely high elevated amounts constantly. And so the easy thing to do or the, the prudent thing to do if you're in the state of Maine at that point, instead of testing every deer, because we'll get into it, PFAS testing is very difficult, is to say, no eat. You you issue a no eat order. So to to all the hunters in the entire state of Maine, just like if E. coli or yeah, just don't eat it because we really can't. Because if you don't have the capability of testing every deer that was ever shot that sure. year, you know you, you 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 really can't do that. And right now, PFAS testing is extremely expensive, even for simple matrices like water. It's very expensive to do. So trying to do tissue in deer, it's even more expensive and time consuming.
0: Who's responsible for the testing? Is it the municipality? Is it the county, the state, federal government? I mean, this is – it's not just a U.S. problem, right? Stuff happens in Canada, Mexico, Nicaragua.
1: Yeah. Uh, Yeah, Is it in
0: third world countries? It's
1: every – I mean, it's ultimately, it's in everywhere. Uh, It really comes down to whether – again, because the molecules are so beneficial, do you take away the – quality of life improvements to a developing country that you know these molecules can provide yeah. right a nonstick pan that works really well to help you know lessen food waste and so forth
0: they're worried about their, right. next, they're worried meal, about not, their next meal not, not contamination exactly
1: so uh you know some of the countries that are starting to look into it quite a bit are your usual suspects right the u.s Europe, uh, your first world, your first world countries with you know quite frankly first world problems that right. to start to be able to look into this and other countries are quite frankly incentivized to not be as aggressive. So, like China, for instance, the world's leading chemical producer of raw materials around the world, they problem they, 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 they their environmental protection agency don't view PFAS as a what they call a persistent organic pollutant because well a lot of their industries rely upon it. How do they view it? What are- uh, they consider it a pollutant, but it's classed below sort of what you would consider the U.S. would now, or is starting to move into seeing as a very uh, harmful mo- molecule. So the China's classifying it more as, you know, don't dump it. but.
0: So keep, we, we keep have it up it here in. with burning coal. Yeah,
1: we have it up here of like, okay, let's look at alternatives. Let's stop using it as much. Uh, let's find out everywhere where it is so we can avoid it. In countries that are producing it, a lot of times it's more of like keep making it, but, you know, just don't dump it in the river or don't dump it in the river between the hours of 8 a.m. and 5 p.m. So, so,
0: so. But for you that just need a pan to cook on, yeah, right. It's, It's a concern, but it's not your biggest concern because you're fighting for your next meal.
1: Yeah, and And, at the the end of the day, the the amount that you ingest on a daily basis, it's minuscule. It, It really does not affect you at all. It is just the continued persistent accumulation that we're seeing. So certain populations will get in more. So folks who, for instance, in the U.S. who live near Air Force bases, there's a lot of remediation work being done, you know, lawsuits occurring at the moment between the US, the Department of Defense and these local communities because, well, the Air Force was just hosing it all down uh, like it was their job. Um, 3M in Minnesota settled, I think it was a $900 million lawsuit over PFAS when they just, they were dumping it into the Minnetonka River and it was just downstream. So downstream of all those communities were just exposed. So if you look at those populations versus populations, so uh, you know, here, or, you know, a population in the middle of nowhere that might not have industry around them, you'll see very different levels of exposure. And so that's what we're trying to get to the bottom of through testing nowadays is where is it is the, is the first big answer, a question that people look for, where is PFAS? Uh, the next question is how much of it is accumulating in the environment. And and then the third one, which is being addressed not at the EPA level, but more so at your universities, the FDA and so forth is, okay, what are the effects of it? So the EPA is really worried about where is it and how much of it is there. And then different segments of the government and studies are done to address the scarier part of the question of, okay, how is it going to affect me?
0: And what they're discovering right now is it could be a fertility issue. It could be a cancer trigger. It could be hormonal issues, hormonal, yeah. thyroid, hormonal. Yeah. So there's a lot of bad things that they, they know that for sure or it's, it's very statistically significant. Statistically
1: significant but with very strong conclusive scientific evidence that suggests that it is certainly not a harmless chemical in our body. Uh, the, that that's for sure been accepted widely across the scientific space, is that this is definitely not a, regardless of who you talk to, even the scientists at a DuPont or at a 3M or at a Dow, they will admit openly that this is not-
0: You know body. Yeah,
1: this is not a benign piece of chemical. You know, the, the marketing spin from producers of it might just simply be like, well, True, you, you just can't take away nonstick pants from everybody, right? You know, like, shoot, I, I know friends who can't barely cook an egg on a nonstick pan. Like, I, I don't want to teach them how to season a cast iron. Like, that'd be even a bigger nightmare. So, uh-huh. so that, that's where it, it, it's very hard. No, because, that
0: that trade off seems, you know, cancer or learn how to cook an egg it, on yeah. cast iron. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I would probably invest in if a cast, cast iron and learn yeah. how to season
1: it. Yeah, so, so the challenge is really, it's, it's so prevalent. Um,
0: 97% was a of start. our 330 million people in this country have PFOS in our body.
1: And based on that number, I think, you know, I'm sure the FDA did not have a large, uh, you know, sample size. You know, I, at 97%, my assumption is 100% of the U.S. population has PFAS uh, of a detectable level in their body. And, you know, what is the level that causes issues? That's to be determined, right? So, yeah. you know, Shaquille O'Neal at 7'2 and 300 pounds probably takes a bit more uh, PFAS in his body to affect him versus myself, uh, a significantly smaller person. So, but he
0: gets more wrappers from the fast food joint.
1: Yeah. So, so he could be exposed more. He's wearing bigger pants. I don't know. So those are some of the studies that we really won't know for five to 10 more years, because really, it's just starting to pick up steam in the last two to three years, have PFAS, the physiological effects of PFAS really started to garner academic interests. and then, uh, and then a big pause actually occurred because of COVID. Because a lot of, if you, if you think about an academic and a university, what are they driven by? It's funding. So sure. a lot of funding then got diverted to COVID research. So, so a big pause had occurred as part of COVID as well. So it'll, it'll take about, I would say, quite a few more years before we truly get the big, big picture of the physiological effects of PFAS. So today... For PFAS, it's really about just knowing. It, it's the testing, because there is no the, the middle portion of it. Which is what you do. Which is what we do. We so we help how it. do you how do you test? What do you what do you? Uh... So that's the challenge with P, uh, with PFAS. It, a field. So if you think about traditional environmental testing, so for certain compounds, for instance, if you're trying to test for uh, fertilizer runoff, you you would have a field kit that looked for nitrogen. So fertilizers have a lot of nitrogen in it. Mm-hmm. So you collect water and it's usually just a little tube. You put the water in there, you put a little bit of the test reagent in there, you shake it up and if it turns blue, kind of like a field drug test, lots of nitrogen. And you compare it to how blue is that test to tell you, okay, the amount of it. Or you do a pH test, how acidic or how uh, basic the water supply is. Those are pretty easy field tests. The problem with PFOS is We believe it's an issue at very low levels, so we're talking parts per billion, parts per trillion levels in the environment can potentially be a concern. Well, kits like that don't exist for PFAS, so you need to bring it to the lab to do testing. Spectrometer testing. testing. You have to use what they call an LCMS, again, uh, to implement, and it's a very, very expensive piece of equipment, and it takes a very well-trained scientific eye to even interpret
0: the results that come Somebody out. Somebody may not have been listening to the last one. So mm-hmm. what's an LCMS? So it's a liquid chromatography mass spectrometer. Okay. Uh, so it's a uh,
1: a technique that t- is very specific and sensitive that will be able to see down to the levels that you need to measure. So we will be able to tell you how much of a molecule is in your sample. And then importantly, it will tell you, it will look, you can tell it to look specifically for the molecule of interest. So think about wastewater that comes out, sewage. It's got everybody's junk in there, you know, you know from a meth shop up the, up the street cooking meth to just our raw sewage that we're coating down. It's all in that water. And so, you know, if I tell you tomorrow, you know, you got to tell me if PFAS is in there, you need an instrument that can sift through all of that junk and then only look for PFAS. You know, at much lower levels than all the other contaminants that might be in there. And then also be able to measure down to parts per billion, parts per trillion. And that's the power of that instrument. And that's how we're able to detect PFAS today. And it's the only, really the only way of detecting PFAS today. There are some, Methods where you measure the fluorine content of water. So obviously you're doing carbon-fluorine bonds. So you go. So, you may, so it makes sense. Okay, we just test for elevated levels of fluorine. Well, there are communities that fluorinate their water automatically. Right. Oh, I brush my teeth for a fluorine toothpaste every day. So it goes into the water. So trying to spot a PFAS elevation when we're talking parts per billion, parts per trillion, above what is already a very high concentration of fluorine becomes difficult. So you end up having to rely on this specific and sensitive technique, and which has lead to a, led to a lot of complications because not every single municipality or every even sometimes every single state, for instance, the state of Maine, does not have LCMS capabilities at the moment. Yeah, I, was, uh, I
0: saw that. They were sending their testing to an adjacent yep. state. But even if they bought the machine, then it becomes the issue of... Who's
1: going to run it? Who's going to run it and then who's going to interpret it because these are not... Um, you know, these are not machines where you plug a sample in and they go, bloop, PFAS at this level. That's not how they no work. big
0: red lights spinning around. No.
1: So it's it, it, these machines, ultimately, they produce data. And it's, hum, it's our job as humans to interpret that data to be able to get us the information. So from data to information still requires a human interface. And that's the nuance and challenge of PFAS testing today is sifting through the junk, Detecting it, detecting it, bringing it down, and then making sense of the data that the mass spectrometers are telling you. And that's some of the challenges that we face. And then the complex matrices now associated with it as well. So you've got drinking water is one test. You've got wastewater is another test. Well, you've got groundwater for people who are using wells is one, another test. These are all different types of water. So you need to make sure you input them into the mass spec in a way that the levels are comparable. Are, are, are you can compare the data. Then we're talking about deer, okay? Do we take a tissue of the deer, uh, piece of the deer's tissue from the heart or from the leg, from the brain? Where do we take it? Because if you analyze PFAS in the liver, where most likely a lot of the you know the, the food, the water processing goes through, maybe there's elevated PFAS there. But if we say okay, just test the muscle tissue, maybe there's a lower amount. How do we disseminate that information into actionable? <laughs> Instances that—that's the big challenge today. So, the, really, the only piece that we've figured out with PFAS right now is the testing portion of detecting where and how much.
0: But how? To and the make, goal there is to put up a big sign that says, "Stay away from this." Stay
1: away from this. Don't drink the water or filter the water. You know, for instance, if you get your groundwater tested, you use a well, and it shows elevated PFAS levels, then you know install filters for everything, including right. your sprinklers, right, at that point before you, you ingest the groundwater. Um, and really that's the only only way we can handle it at the moment.
0: How long does it take, if you're testing a tissue sample from a deer or sample soil sample, mm-hmm. when you run it through that LCMS mm-hmm. platform and you put it in front of a human yeah. to go and interpret that data, Start to finish, how long does it take to actually run that test?
1: It depends on the sample. Uh, Most of your time is spent on what they call sample preparation. It's actually, okay, I've got a chunk of deer. Uh, How do I, so the LCMS, it's liquid chromatography. It literally means liquid. So you have to get, it takes, it injects liquid. So it's like, okay, well, that's a piece of a, a deer. How do I inject a piece of deer liver? Well, you have to, first of all, chop it up, spin it. And then you have to figure out, okay, how do I get this mash of deer tissue, and how do I get the PFOS out of it? So then you have to extract it out with, you know, similar to, like you mentioned, water, fil- water filter. So we put it, uh, we put the water filter under the deer tissue, and we run water through it. And then the water will pick up the PFOS, and it will get caught in the filter. So then we take that filter, we will use another chemical. So typically, we were using water to get the uh PFOS out and it got caught in the filter, so then we'll use maybe alcohol or some or some kind of organic solvent to then wash the PFOS off of it into a little vial. So now you've got now you've concentrated the PFOS from the tissue into liquid, and then we inject that liquid in LCMS. And that can be very time consuming. It can be an hour before you even get to that stage. Whereas if you're testing for groundwater or drinking water, I walk to the spigot right now, I'll collect it, take five mils of it, put it in a vial and then I'm off to the instrument. The instrumentation portion of it is quick, 10 minutes for a set of data to be analyzed, um, for the data to be spit out, for
0: you to analyze and interpret. So it really comes down
1: to what we're looking at.
0: Okay. And how many of these LCMS tools, platforms, uh, whatever the right word is, setups, Mm -hmm. how many of those are around the country? If Maine doesn't have one, So
1: Maine doesn't have, you know, they have them. Maine has plenty of mass LCMSs in the state. They're just used for different things. So, for instance, Maine probably uses them for drug courts. They probably use them for testing people in the criminal justice system to make sure, you know, if you're on parole and you're not supposed to touch alcohol or touch anything, then, you know, you go into your parole officer every two weeks, you pee in a cup. They probably have a mass spec telling them whether, you know that's in there or not. Maine probably has mass specs for other applications. They just don't have a mass spec for...
0: And it needs to be dedicated. Oh yeah,
1: so that's the other challenge right now is PFAS is in a lot of plastics and stuff, so even these instruments that get shipped straight from the manufacturer has to get decontaminated of PFAS because they're so sensitive that they're seeing PFAS in the baseline. So you're constantly capturing PFAS and what you're trying to do is capture the little spike of elevated PFAS that's coming through. So instrument manufacturers, you know, the tubings that run through them sometimes are plastic. And what they have to do is they replace them with uh, specific types of uh, materials. There's a type of material called peak, which is a type of composite material. Some instrument manufacturers will go as far as replacing the entire instrument with titanium because steel could be impregnated with a thin layer of PFAS on it. So they'll replace the entire flow path with titanium instead. So you have to go to quite a bit of length to ensure your instrument is sterilized for PFOS. And then sometimes if a technician was wearing gloves and they spill a little bit of the solvent while they're prepping it, all of a sudden you've got PFOS. You're going to run it again. <laughs>
0: So, you guys don't make those instruments. What do y'all do with them, so, or what do, what do you do for your customers? So we we provide
1: the consultation for it. So if you um, if you're a, if you're a state, a municipality, um, for instance, or uh, we, we've been assisting with uh, the Native American Water Council, for instance, you know they want to take control of their testing a little bit. We provide that assistance. Okay, how do you set up a lab, and then how what instrument choices do you pick? Because if you're looking for PFAS in waste remediation, so you're at a, if you're a lab, let's say you start a lab, your environmental lab, you don't do LCMS testing. You're a mom and pop shop that does pH readings, you know, pathogens analysis for the local water supply and so forth. And all of a sudden you're getting- Mom and pop a- shop does pathogen testing? Yeah. So there, there's mom and pop environmental shops. They're pretty small. They usually contract to your local municipalities. They're just small labs, you know, 10, 15 staff, and all of a sudden they get a bid for PFAS samples, and then they're like, oh, okay, we can do it. You know, They win the bid because they're locally owned and so forth, and then they realize we don't have the expertise for it. And then they send all the samples out to a couple. There's only two or three really large companies that do PFAS testing at the moment. Do so, you all do
0: that where people send to you?
1: No, we don't do our own testing. Uh, we're hoping to be able to do it here by the middle of the year. Um, but at the moment, what we do is we, we help set up labs because we have the methodology done and developed. So what I mentioned about how do you interpret the data? Uh, whose instrument do you pick? And again, it's uh, whose testing are you looking to do? So mom-and-pop shops looking to do remediation work at an Air Force base where you're very elevated levels. You don't have to buy the highest-end instrument to do it because you're reading pretty high levels anyways. But if you are looking to do deer tissue, <laughs> where you have to see very low and see through a lot of junk, um, then you're going to have to buy a high-end instrument. So we help with a lot of the consulting so that you don't have to list. We, we help cut through some of the marketing buzz from the manufacturers on what to buy, what not to buy, uh, help select the platform, and we implement the platform. So we install it, we train you, we train the, and we develop the method for actually seeing the PFAS.
0: As far as being able to analyze it, that human capital component, is that something that that mom-and-pop shop that's testing environmentals, are they equipped or is it a new hiring decision or is it something they can be trained up? They can be trained up especially if you're already doing
1: environmental work Uh, you're pretty close um, to being able to achieve some of that work already so we'll be able to help train your staff to be able to uh, interpret the LCMS data uh, for PFAS.
0: Now whenever if I'm that person that's trying to interpret that data, do I I'm not just reading a chart I would imagine there's some kind of big data analytical engine that I run it through? Yeah, so the
1: the instrument manufacturer will have a software suite that will help you dissect the data. Um, Ultimately, uh, the way it works is we tell this instrument, look for these specific PFAS compounds. So, specific like if you're doing EPA uh, 537, I think it's like 15 compounds. So we program the instrument and we literally say, look only for these 15 compounds. The instrument will run and it will tell you, okay, of the 15 compounds, I detected 10 of them. And it will say, at these levels. And mm-hmm. then so, so the instrument will be able to tell you that. And then we are the one, we're sort of the translator. We program the instrument to help you get to that stage of that, of that data.
0: Okay. That makes a little bit more sense to me. Yeah. So from a scale perspective, this is kind of uh, – like you said, this started in the 40s. Yep. We've got this slow burn to get to where we're at, yep. or seemingly slow, depending yep. on how you want to characterize it. What is, how do we measure the scale of just how bad this is right now? Because we, we see the news reports yep. picking up PFAS bat, PFAS bat, right. deer, water, all these things. Right. Not good at all. Yeah. But... W- it's also like a blip on, well, all the news right now right. is a 10-second blip anyway. Yeah. So is there any stickiness to actually getting some energy behind this and possibly remediating? Or is it Teflon?
1: No, I think it will, it will get there. I think we're, we're there's two pillars of it. I think the first pillar is actually just testing. You know, it's, we've got to test and find out where it is and how much and then waiting for the physiological studies that are being done at the academic, at the FDA, the health department level to be finalized so that the two portions of the data can be combined to figure out what's the impact. Because if, so for instance, we we measure around the country right now. Let's say everybody jumps on it and starts measuring we're collecting it, okay, we find out where the hotspots are, but we pretty much determine that every American is exposed to this product. That's great. But then we have to wait for the data from the physiological studies because then they tell us at what level is it truly an issue? Because if they tell us at even minuscule parts per quintillion it's it's harmful, then the human impact is humongous at that point. Uh, but what if what if they told us, okay, it's got to be parts per million, really high levels where it makes an issue? Then we're focused on the communities that are disproportionately affected, you know, the folks downstream from... A manufacturing plant, uh, and so forth, uh, you know, or the folks who live off the land. So the Native Americans, for instance, who are very much so, you know, about growing their crops and hunting and gathering on their reservations, then they're disproportionately affected versus the folks who, who we buy industrial agriculture uh, as a result. So until the physiological studies are complete and we move beyond just correlation, between PFAS and cancer, PFAS and reproduction, to now this level of PFAS causes this much cancer. And if you go up to this, then the, the, the 80 percentile of cancer risk increases by this much. Once we get to that type of data, we'll be able to better understand the impacts of this molecule. And we're at the, in my opinion, we're at the very, very, very early fledgling stages of this potentially becoming... A incredibly big issue on the level of the glyphosate um, roundup scandals back in the day where, you know, oh, it's a, it's a herbicide, no problem, just spray it, like, like whatever. And then downstream it's like, oh, my God, it's causing all types of, wrecking all types of environmental damage. We're just not there yet. We're still in the stages of where is it and how is it going to affect people in the long term? Okay. That's it's fascinating. It scares you. It's terrifying. Every time a uh, study is out, you know, I'm going like, okay, what did, you know, this professor at this university find out? You know, what is this person uh, at the FDA finding about uh, PFAS correlation? And then the other studies that are even more scary are the ones that are like, oh my God, you know, elevated levels here. And it's like, we never even knew it was here. And and then we're finding it here now where we thought they were immune from it and so forth. So, so that's, that's the challenge. And then uh, every day, though, we continue to make new PFAS. That's the other, that's the other concerning portion of it is um, companies are driven to innovate, and they make new versions of PFAS that are being invented every single day. To,
0: yeah, it's just within current regulatory requirements, but... Yeah, because if it's,
1: uh, okay, my new molecule isn't under the new EPA directive, great, now I can sell it again. Or... God forbid, I want a molecule that's even more stable or even more flame, you know, flame-proof. Let's say, you know, an airplane manufacturer says, I need, uh, you know, this insulation to be even more flame-proof. Then, okay, we go, well, then we'll innovate and create a new molecule for that, just being driven by industrial demand. Um, and then we'll, we'll have to f- pick up the pieces and the consequences as we figure out the actual impacts of these, uh, these molecules.
0: You've got a hard stop happening right now, so man, I appreciate you coming in. Absolutely, yep. Fascinating stuff. Maybe uh, you're out of Chicago, so maybe next time we'll do something remotely. Sounds good.